We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Raise the Titanic on August 1st, 1980. It was written by Adam Kennedy from an adaptation by Eric Hughes of the novel by Clive Cussler, directed by Jerry Jameson, and released by Associated Film Distribution who earlier this year distributed Saturn III. Ironically, though, the score here is provided by John Barry, the composer of the Bond theme, and not John Barry, who was originally slated to direct Saturn III before his untimely death working on the set of Empire Strikes Back. So, for two credits on adaptation and screenplay, yes, which are different credits mm-hmm. by different people, mm-hmm. so are we to assume that the there was an, a screenplay written by the adaptation credit that was then further changed and edited? There was a book written by Clive Cussler. Right. It was adapted into a screenplay by Eric Hughes. And then, and then rewritten? Rewritten by Adam Kennedy. And then they brought in a bunch of people to do rewrites. And then they had Adam Kennedy come back and do the last one. So he got the official solo screenplay credit. Okay. Um, but Eric Hughes wrote the one that Clive Cussler liked that never got made. Interesting. In 1973, the first of Clive Cussler's Dirk Pitt series of books, The Mediterranean Caper, was published. Three years later, the third title in the series, Raise the Titanic, was released and quickly optioned for $450,000, along with two other Pitt novels, Iceberg and The Sea Dweller, by Lou Grade, who saw potential for a series and discovered director Stanley Kramer was interested in taking on this project. In pre-production, a 10-ton, 50-foot scale replica of the Titanic was built, from the original blueprints of the actual Titanic at a cost of $5 million. $5 million? For that 10-ton, 50-foot ship, which, if you're keeping track, is about five hectares, if we're using Saturn III's budget as, as a reference. <laughs> well, because isn't a hectare an actual unit of measurement? Unit of yeah. Measurement? yeah. <laughs> but this is, uh, I'm using a hectare as $1 million of feature film budget, uh, because that's what the robot cost. Lou Grade argued that this prop was two to three times bigger than necessary, and together with the $3 million tank it would be submerged in, they had blown a million dollars past the cost of the actual Titanic before inflation. (laughs) The tank, constructed in Malta, was the only one big enough to film all the underwater sequences. Though he did have a contract to direct, Kramer couldn't see making the movie for less than $14 million when the studio was looking to keep it under nine meaning they had already spent four-fifths of the budget on one prop. Kramer was released from his contract and paid $500,000, which is a pretty sweet deal. Yeah. Getting paid for walking away from a project. Inexplicably, six months after dropping Kramer over creative differences and budgetary differences, Lou Grade announced a new director, Jerry Jameson, and a new budget of $20 million. He also touted the absence of stars as a selling point, insisting (laughs) that the ship itself was a star. I I don't think that he's wrong. I don't think so either, but don't pretend like that's a selling point. Like, if there were famous people in it, it would be even better, right? Yeah. Yeah. The budget, however, spiraled out of control from there, 
during the search for a ship to double as the full-size Titanic. Eventually, one was found in Athens. Although Adam Kennedy wrote the first and last drafts of the screenplay and retained sole credit for it, as many as 17 writers were employed during the process of rewriting, one of whom, novelist Larry McMurdy, reportedly hated the book, which he described as more of an instruction manual on how to raise a sunken ship than an actual story. He was the only screenwriter of the 17 who didn't petition for a credit on the finished product. Which I think is funny because when they actually talk about the logistics of this whole thing, it comes up for all of five seconds in the film. And if that's what the book was mostly about, they took very little from the book. (laughs) I wasn't able to find a, a copy of the book to read before this, but I get the impression that it's kind of like The Martian where it just delves into the science of a lot of it. Mm -hmm. It's not as much about the story of these characters. To lock in the cooperation of the U.S. Navy, rewrites were demanded to prevent the Russians from appearing to outsmart the Americans, which is why the end of it has a weird curveball that feels awkward and rushed. Mm -hmm. Wait, you mean the original, they did outsmart the Americans? Well, they at least seemed smarter in places. The, okay, the, the so problem it's was not that like it's they like, won at the end of the book. No, but it probably was closer to the Russians not making fools of themselves, where they were both being very smart and tactical, and they pulled one over on us, but we were able to, you know, save the day or whatever. Cussler felt like his book was gutted by the script and disagreed with all the casting as well. In 1977, for whatever reason, it was announced that Charles Bronson would star, although he was never officially attached. Steve McQueen... Custler's second choice after James Gardner felt the story was flat and turned it down. Elliot Gould was offered the role of Dirk Pitt and passed to do Last Flight of Noah's Ark for Disney, a different movie about reconstructing a crashed ship into a functional boat. Jason Robards fully admitted that he did this for the money. By the time they actually started filming, $15 million had already been spent on the tank and models. Keep in mind Kramer was suggesting... Keep in mind, Kramer was dropped from the project for suggesting it might cost $14 million, and they'd spent $15 million before they started shooting. <laughs> Apparently, after it was released, 12 minutes were cut from the film. We may have actually watched the edited version. Yeah, because there's... I have questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also... I read something about a second scene at the end with Alec Guinness, which was originally planned to shoot in a church, but a terrible storm destroyed the church the day before they were going to shoot. Wow. So they had to move to a different location. There's no second scene with Alec Guinness. The budget eventually settled at $40 million, and it made $7 million back. Oh, dear. Approving of the final product, producer Lou Grade blamed its poor performance on being beaten to theaters by SOS Titanic one year prior, ironically distributed by EMI, a company his own brother chaired. The failure of Race the Titanic is part of why Lou Grade withdrew from the film industry in, in general, uh, and Kessler refused any future adaptations of his work for 20 years. The film was nominated for three Razzies at the inaugural ceremony, Worst Picture, Screenplay, and Supporting Actor for David Selby. That's the guy playing Seagram. It didn't win any, but don't worry, Lou Grade also had a hand in bringing Can't Stop the Music to theaters this year, so he didn't leave (laughs) empty-handed. I don't think it deserved Worst Picture nomination. Yeah. Obviously, the Titanic had not been discovered at the time of this film's production, but it was soon after in 1985, and the movie got a lot of stuff right and a couple things wrong. There were conflicting reports from survivors of the wreck that the ship went down in two pieces. Kessler bet on the one-piece testimony, assuming people had misdiagnosed the sound of the collapsing smokestack and exploding steam engines as the ship splitting. But aside from that, he got a surprising amount of stuff right, including the reason they were looking in the first place. 
1984, Dr. Robert Ballard was contracted by the U.S. Navy to locate and check on the status of two nuclear-capable submarines, the USS Scorpion and USS Thresher, sunk in the region in the 1960s. Their concern was that Russians might have found the wrecks and scavenged them for nuclear technology. The Navy gave Ballard the cover story that he was hunting the wreckage of the Titanic, an effort he had publicly undertaken in the past. Ballard agreed to do the search for the Navy on the condition that if he discovered the subwrecks ahead of schedule, he could use the remaining time actually seeking the Titanic. He found the subs untouched and with the remaining 12 days moved to the basic strategy seen in the film based on the last known locations of the ship and mowing the lawn survey, which is up and down and up and down across. He discovered the wreckage on September 1st, 1985. Ballard also takes credit for the discovery of the Bismarck sunk in World War II, the USS Yorktown sunk in the Battle of Midway, and the wreck of John F. Kennedy's PT-109 rammed by a Japanese destroyer in 1943. Apparently, an actual effort to raise at least part of the Titanic was attempted in 1996, and a large portion was raised to about 200 feet below the surface before the seas got rough, and while towing the hull portion to a safer area, it broke loose from the attached flotation devices and sank back to the bottom where it obviously remains today. Another thing Kessler got right, but the movie cut completely, was that as soon as they got the ship up in the book, they were hit by a hurricane, which is not dissimilar to how the 1996 attempt ended. We open with black and white still photos of the assembly and launch of the Titanic. Underwater footage of a ship. I think this is the Titanic. <laughs> There's just footage of the ship sitting there at the bottom of the ocean mm-hmm. under the title. And we cut to somewhere snowy. We'll later learn this is Svalbard or something. A Svardlov. Svardlov. A man is breaking into an underground mine through a snow cover, and he has a Geiger counter with him. Uh, there's rails in this mine. I was so uncomfortable at this moment because he's he's all alone, mm-hmm. and he's digging in the snow. And at first, I'm like, oh, no, is he digging somebody out of an avalanche? And then he gets, like, he breaks through a little bit, and then he just crawls into this snow yeah. hole that is just barely wider than his body. And I was freaking out. I mean, I get claustrophobic, but this I'm like, I would not go in there that snow is just going to collapse on you but it does seem like he's the first one in there in in 60 yeah, some years 60 years yeah but also the moment he turns on that geiger counter it's just like ooh, yeah i don't know if you want to be down in this tunnel <laughs> uh he walks through it until he finds a person completely encased in ice except for a hand which is protruding from the ice which has rotted down to a skeleton uh, a nearby placard displays a carving that says here lies captain jake hobart united states army frozen in a storm february 10th 1912 back at the white house a pair of men this is admiral james sendecker and dr seagram they're discussing keeping some russia business out of the papers that's what we just left in svardlov was happening technically on russian land well it's disputed land right but, but it's not American land, I would guess. Well, they said everybody claims this territory, but Russia tends to put people on it. Yeah. <laughs> the Admiral and Dr. Seagram are notifying the military in case they'll need assistance extracting their, their man who uh, is there in the, in the cave. They've developed a defense system which utilizes invisible beams which are impenetrable to missiles. So it's basically the Star Wars defense yeah, system. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a laser shield yeah uh but they need an extremely powerful battery for it and that's where byzanium comes in which is a non-existent element that they're going to be using as a power source i really wish this had been the part 
that had changed, or I hope that maybe they changed it from the book and that the book isn't this because this plot doesn't seem, I really don't like this idea. Like if they were just trying to to make a shield. Yeah. Like if they just said like, you know, we're going to build a new kind of energy source that's going to power a whole city. That's just as required as a laser defense shield. I know it's not as timely, but it just seems too, too futuristic. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of liked the the premise uh, because I felt like you needed to you needed to justify spending endless amounts of money on this, and I think the only thing that you could justify is some is something to do with defense or national security or national mm. security. Sandecker is making a note of the fact that this guy is a few days behind schedule in Svardlov, and he suggests sending a man in to retrieve the guy. But they really need to get it right because they don't want to spark an international incident. But it's part of why they're meeting with the military in the first place is to make sure that we're at least aware and preparing something. Yeah, it's quite possible he's been intercepted already, which is why he's late. Yeah. Uh, We cut back to the cave where right as the man is surfacing, he is shot at by a Russian soldier and then chased and bit by a dog. The man escaping the cave is actually hit by the gunshot and is knocked to the ground in the snow. And... Then suddenly the rescue mission arrives. It's a one-man rescue crew who the very first thing that our hero does, Dirk Pitt does in this movie, is shoot and kill a dog. And and, and a then guy, the Russian soldier. Yeah, a Russian soldier who was just doing his job. And as far as he knows, is is on Russian land. Yeah, I think this could cause an international incident. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. it does in this movie. And then uh, Dirk Pitt, our hero, picks up the wounded American and throws him up over his shoulder and marches unknowable miles through frozen wasteland. Uh, at first it looks like he's just walking like to a dead end mm-hmm. on an icy river. But uh, we just cut to a pair of Russian agents discussing having found this dead Russian soldier and they know immediately that Americans are responsible because who else would do that? Well, I'm sure they can tell just by the ballistics. Yeah. Well, the ballistics are the same everywhere because we sold all the guns. one of them makes mention of the chess genius Boleslavsky's sicilian defense and uh just kind of drops it (laughs) that's the end of their conversation we see sandecker and seagram waiting at the airport for dirk pitt to land with the agent from svardlov and sandecker says that pitt is a former navy man who only works when he feels like it and seagram says pardon my expression colonel but he sounds like a major pain in the ass they need to rush the American agent to the hospital because he's lost a lot of blood since getting shot. And Seagram is being a big baby about it because he just wants to interrogate this guy and debrief him right now. But people want to keep him alive. This guy's the, the American agent uh, that was in the cave is named Copland. And apparently he told Pitt that there was a half ton of byzanium in this mine that had been stripped out by Americans from Colorado at like the turn of the century in like 1910, 12. Which is weird because the Geiger counter was still going off like crazy. Mm-hmm. So there's still a lot of it there. Yeah. I mean, I guess I don't know what a usable amount of byzanium is when they just said it's like seven or eight times more powerful than uranium. So you would right. think that you would need seven or eight times less of it. Well, because well, they say specifically how much they need later. And it doesn't seem like that much. Like yeah. It seems like there should have been enough in this mine, but they don't want to fight over it. But there might not be any left. You don't really know what the half-life of this made-up, you know. Well, yeah, but the Geiger counter was going off like crazy. So there's something there. I guess. He reads the placard that 
Copland copied down from the frozen corpse in the cave. And then we cut to a newsroom. Seagram meets with his girlfriend or wife, not clear. And she asks for a lead on whatever's bumming him out, but he can't share. She says that he lately he's turning into Charlie Chan, which I don't understand the reference, but it reminded me that next week's movie is basically a Charlie Chan parody. Cause... I, I think she just means that he's really cryptic in his explanations. Oh, okay. He asks her if she's ever heard of Dirk Pitt, and she says no. And then five minutes later says, actually, <laughs> did yeah, you I... say Dirk Pitt? <laughs> Oh, that Dirk Pitt. But yeah, we cut right from them in this newsroom to them walking to the end of a dock off of like a lake house. And they are about to go fishing, but she doesn't like hooking the worms because she's a little squeamish. And so he offers to do it. But this is where she admits, oh, you know what? I, when you said Dirk Pitt, yeah, I do know him. Uh, He's naval intelligence. And he's like, oh, did you guys used to date? Because that's the only reason that you would have pretended not knowing him. And she's like, no, no, no. I just, I know him, and he was, we, it was never that kind of guy for me. And he says, Dirk Pitt, what kind of name is that? Sounds like a pirate. And then she laughs about that. Suddenly, a helicopter calls down to them on the edge of the dock. It turns out that Seagram needs to head back to Washington. Not clear why they needed to do this from the helicopter. No, this is such an unnecessary use of money in this film. Mm-hmm. It's really annoying. Literally, could have had some dude in a suit just walk down the dock and be like, we got you. We need to take you. Or just a phone call while he was still in the newsroom. Yeah. His, uh, his girlfriend slash wife reporter lady is mad that he even gave them an address to come reach him at. They fill him in on the story. In 1910, some Byzantium was discovered on this island. And Hobart and Brewster and some other miners went there illegally to collect it from this mine. A ship took them from Svardlov to north of Aberdeen with their payload of 500 pounds or something like that or a half ton a half half ton ton, of byzanium yeah but they were being trailed on their way back by russians right so they they tried to keep changing it up they plan to send the byzanium home from southampton to escape the russians and the last man with the byzanium was a man named southby so they lowered the byzanium into a ship that set sail on april 10th in 1912 which was the titanic Apparently, they only need 200 ounces of it for the generator, but there should be a lot of it on the Titanic. When Seagram arrives, Dirk Pitt basically gives them the backstory that they got from some letter that someone had. Uh, And it turns out that in 1910, this team of men discovered Byzanium and Svardlov, and that Hobart, Brewster, and a team of miners went to the island. A ship took them and their half-ton supply of Byzanium to north of Aberdeen, and they were being pursued by Russians. The plan was to hide it on some sort of commercial vessel to get it all the way back to America. And then it just so happens the ship that they chose was the Titanic. It turns out they only need 200 ounces of it for the generator that they're envisioning. And the whole group gets on a boat at night. They're on the back of a yacht and they conclude that it's 12,500 feet underwater. They can't send divers that low. So they're going to have to raise the Titanic to sea level. Are you talking about raising the Titanic? And then uh, somebody says, well, it's never been done before. We know that. But we did raise that nuclear sub three years ago, nearly a third the size. So it has been done before. Yeah. But also it was in shallower water. Right. Uh, all these other things that were known about it. Right. But it's still, it's no, like there's it a clear. Been done. If it If it was a third the size and not in as deep a water, then it's not equivalent. They've raised other ships. Yes, they've raised other ships. It's it's like saying, 
we know that no one's ever raised a titanic before well, it's like there's only the, one titanic no that's but just the point saying you could get to you know mars because you've been to the moon it's like well not necessarily those aren't equivalent technically <laughs> like space are. travel is a thing yeah so i'm just saying ship salvage is a thing they've done it before with things not this deep and not this big so right. it's still a unique task yes but it just seems weird to say we know that it's it's never been done before and if by it he means specifically that titanic has never been raised from the bottom of the ocean then that's accurate <laughs> then, then it's like yeah sure that has never happened but we've done other things no, i think he means that something this large and this deep yeah the odds are terrible it cost a ton of money but it's not impossible sir if we get full cooperation from the navy which i think is exactly how someone pitched the final countdown it's expensive it's difficult but it's going to be totally possible with the full cooperation of the u.s navy we're gonna uh, get so much footage yeah a lot of in-air refueling for no reason jim the uh sandecker character is willing to work with the president and get his approval on pitt's word that this is in fact doable and pitt says yeah let's do it i mean this sounds totally crazy why would we not do it later he just by coincidence bumps into dana that's seagram's wife girlfriend on a street corner and he invites her for a cup of coffee and she says oh no sorry i'm meeting with uh with gene he's like oh seagram and she's he's like he's not good enough for you and she's like okay well i gotta go yeah this is like the most awkward conversation yeah it it felt real only because she, like her smiling just felt like very forced i really want to get out of here and he's <laughs> still talking to me but they part ways here dr seagram and pitt are trying to roast each other in an office while they wait for sandecker to show up and tell them what the president said pitt says that seagram looks like a country club tennis pro and dr seagram says well that makes us even i wouldn't take you for a pirate sandecker shows up and he does have the president's approval so they're in business pitt is introduced to captain joe burke and master chief walker these are actually friends of his but they're rounding out the crew of this mission seagram shows up and asks burke to get all of the navy's meteorological info loaded onto the onboard computer and burke says oh that's a fine idea and then after everybody leaves but pitt and seagram he's like hey don't fucking boss these people around like yeah he's the captain he's in charge of this mission you don't get to tell him what to do and then pitt does a presentation for the heads of the navy to discuss how they're even going to go about finding the ship in the first place because like we said before it wasn't discovered until 1985 so they're using the last radio position combined with the carpathia and mount temple reported rescue locations which none of them match up but they right. form a triangle that they're going to start from the center of and sort of spiral out they're going to be piloting submersibles in concentric circles from the center of this triangle this is all top secret as russia would love to intercept the mission nobody's allowed to know even the people that are participating in the mission aren't allowed to know except for the the highest up people yeah they they know that they're looking for metal that's yeah. about all they, they're allowed to know i feel like if you are in the Navy and not an idiot, you and you're in this particular area of the ocean looking for something on the bottom of the ocean, you could have figured this out. <laughs> well, you, you could certainly figure out that they're probably looking for a ship. Yeah. Um, why the Navy wouldn't be involved in searching for the Titanic, would I guess, would be my question. Yeah, I would have uh, assumed that uh, it was like a nuclear sub, like what actually happened in 85 when they discovered it was that they were looking for... Yeah. bombs that we had that had been lost based on these 
predictions the ship could be anywhere inside of a two-mile-wide triangle. I would be surprised that you would say that it's within a two-mile-wide triangle because the angle at which it could have gone down, it could have traveled much further than from the spot at which it was last seen by another ship or heard from where it went down. Yeah, it depends on how straight down it would have gone yeah. at yeah, that time. It, yeah. it, I mean, it could have drifted at an angle and gone much further than the two miles. And from what we know about the Titanic now is that the two pieces, the two halves, are not next to each other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They collect the official blueprints of the actual Titanic as well as a crew list, and they're able to figure out that Bigelow, who was a junior third officer in charge of cargo on the Titanic, is still alive and might have some information as to where this shipment that they're looking for was stored on the ship. So Pitt goes to meet with him. Somehow this old man remembers specifically that it was cargo hold number nine in the D-deck on the port side and that he actually interacted with the man who loaded it who had a great big bushy beard. Uh, The bearded man, as the ship was sinking, pointed a gun at Bigelow and demanded to be led to the hold and stayed in the vault muttering, thank God for Southspeed to himself while the ship was going down. Pitt and Bigelow head back to his local bar. The woman at the bartender here says, Uh, What are you at? A whiskey or a nice pint of bitter? And Bigelow's flirting with the bartender a bit when he introduces his retired friend Pitt. And she's like, oh, you're pretty young to be retired. Hands off him, Sarah. Uh, they head upstairs to this his one's l- mine <laughs> <laughs> i found him fair and square you said you're a navy man right they head upstairs to his apartment to see his titanic collection and uh, he's got a little model of the ship a couple little trinkets here and there and then a big pennant that he took off of the ship as it was sinking but he's describing the ship as he's mourning it and he says standing as tall as one of your skyscrapers it's like no 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 it wasn't <laughs> <laughs> well i guess if you stood at the it time end. at the time maybe it was well he's talking he's talking about the height of the ship in the water i think oh see i, I would i would i thought like if you like took the ship and then stood it upright oh, on its butt yeah before it went down it was as tall as a skyscraper but uh yeah he's he's mourning the loss of the ship and obviously all the souls on board and then he takes the pennant down from the frame and he folds it up and hands it to Pitt, and he says if you manage to raise that ship would you do me the favor of reattaching this pennant and we cut to a pack of massive Navy ships at sea, and they send out submersibles to begin the search at around 10,000 feet with sonar, and they haven't had any luck so far. The men in the submersible are complaining about searching for something when they don't even know what it is, but these submersibles are built and operated by NUMA, which stands for National Underwater and Marine Agency, which started as a fictional agency exclusive to Clive Cussler's novels, but was officially founded in 1979 alongside the shooting of this film and is dedicated to the preservation of maritime heritage through the discovery, archaeological survey, and conservation of shipwreck artifacts. In 1999, NUMA was actually responsible for the discovery of the RMS Carpathia, which famously came to the aid of the Titanic as it sank in 1912. But it sank as well? (laughs) Uh, It sank in a war later. But... uh, it's neat that Clive Cussler formed the organization that found the Carpathia when yeah. all of his books are about famous shipwrecks. Yeah, yeah, I guess because Sahara was about a shipwreck too, even though the, the whole places. series is is about this. The, they're all maritime, mm. like sh- sunken ship mystery stuff. Is this isn't this the same agency that then found um, the Merrimack? Numa. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like that happened in the eighties too. That's possible. Was it the Merrimack or the Monitor that they found? I always get them confused. Those ironclads. Yeah. It may have been the Monitor because I think that they raised the gun. They actually brought the gun turret back up. 
The Merrimack was found in September 1982 by Numa. There you go. Okay, there you go. And now I'm gonna look Numa. up. Now I'm gonna look up the, the <laughs> monitor. <laughs> was the monitor? It was found, right? Yeah. Okay. It looks like that was earlier. No monitor found. Okay. The monitor was found in '73. So yeah. So but Numa did find the Merrimack. Yeah. Uh, as everyone heads back to the ships at night, Burke suggests holding a briefing to inform the men what they're actually looking for to boost morale because they'll probably get really excited. A Russian ship floats by, a marine research vessel. But they don't know what the Americans are up to yet. They're just very curious, and they've decided to set up shop and keep an eye on them. Right, because it's international water, so the, look, right. the U.S. Navy can't tell them to go away. Yeah, um, which is funny because it's the second movie this year where a Russian boat is just like, I'm just going to float around you guys because yeah. you can't do anything about it. Suddenly, the submersible, I think this is codenamed Starfish, springs a leak and begins descending uncontrolled because of electrical problems, and the flooding inside of the capsule and they take too long to drop the weights attached to the submersible and it implodes violently yeah in full view of the other submersible vessel who then requests permission to surface teams of divers do experiments with a miniature titanic and i wondered if suddenly the budget didn't get cut a lot because you just (laughs) see this really bad titanic boat getting just floating around in the water and you're like what the hell is this now but uh, they're doing experiments Seagram meets with Pitt again to announce that by mistake they were projecting the Titanic's location based on a full replica, forgetting that one of the smokestacks had reportedly broken off before it went under, and they will now have to move the search tens of miles to the new position where the boat would have landed with this broken smokestack. Which, which, I was like, okay, so now we're going to go move to this new position. Cut to, it's like, they're already there. Yeah. And they're already searching around in that area. It's like, I was like, "What? Are we? We're here already? <laughs> yeah, we're just just trying to space this out and just just wasting time." But I think it also just proves the fact that their original theory of, well, if it's in the middle of this triangle of known position, it couldn't have possibly like drifted at an angle further yeah. away. Yeah. Like, nope, that's exactly nope. what it did. <laughs> it's definitely going to be right here. Uh, the other submersible, Turtle, finds something in the rocks on the ocean floor, and they grab it with their General Electric robot arms. It looks like some kind of horn. When they get it up, they clean it, and it's beautiful. <laughs> I'm impressed with the like spit a, shine they're able to put yeah. on this Musical thing. instrument horn, I'm just going to specify. It's yeah, it's not, not like... a it's not a, an <laughs> antler at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> that would be great. How did the deer get here? <laughs> but apparently this horn has an inscription uh, for Graham Farley, who was a member of the band on the Titanic, and someone says that if the horn looks this good, then the ship must be in great condition because of the temperature of the water and the fact that it's so far below the surface that there shouldn't be a lot of organic material that would break it down the russians have somehow put together that the titanic search is going on and the dead russian and svardlov had something to do with this and they're on the hunt for their byzanium the sea cliff another submersible seems to have found something big with their metal detector and pitt is in a second submersible on approach when they find a smokestack and follow it to a massive drop-off Pitt takes his submersible, the Deep Quest, into the hole, and they find something huge. The ship is so big that they literally break their metal detector, which doesn't seem possible. Yeah. Unless they're turning this thing off every time they head back to the Navy ships. Like, (laughs) does this happen every time you pull in? Um, But they have found the Titanic, and they spend a few minutes just sort of floating around it in awe. Uh, 
uh, while this is going on uh, on the surface vessel, they keep getting these weird reports of static on a radio frequency. Yeah. It's like intermittent static that occurs like every night at a certain time. And they're trying to track that down. Yeah. And we get a shot of a mysterious stranger on the deck of the ship with some kind of device. Yeah. Uh, we cut to a party happening at the Kremlin, maybe? Some Russian government building. And Elia Baskin and his boss walk outside to speak. Elia confirms that the Titanic has been discovered. And his boss tells him to leak the Titanic and Byzanium stories to the press, in America specifically, and to mention Admiral Sandecker. A news report on television reports the entire story, but I feel like they might have checked with government officials before uh, they announced that Byzanium was discovered and that it's a part of this defense program operation because they probably wouldn't want to breach national security information. I also feel like this whole storyline of the Russians being like, okay, let's leak it to the news, and then there's a news story, and then they have to announce what's actually happening, like they have to, you know, the government has to be accountable for it is totally pointless yeah it totally defeats the purpose of having the mole because now they're just admitting to everything on tv well nothing happens because of it yeah like there's no like complaint consequences there's no complaint about oversight or there's no group protesting though the titanic should be left left down there yeah there's no reason why anybody cares that this happened but Seagram goes to meet with his wife. I does he get on a plane and fly all the way back to right. New York? He he's suddenly in her office, upset that she leaked a story. That and she didn't even leak a story. No, she, she just reported yeah. a story that yeah. was leaked to her. Right, which because he has told her nothing, she had no idea was connected to him in any way, shape, or form. Right, but he got on a plane and he flew back to America from this boat where they just found the Titanic today. Right. Um. Which seems even more suspicious if you're trying to claim that this story wasn't leaked by you yeah. by immediately flying to your girlfriend who's a reporter. Yeah. But um, he's like, oh, now they're going to think I leaked it to you. And it's like, okay, I don't care. Yeah. You didn't. Then also nothing comes from that either. Well, I also think it's sort of crappy of her to say, so what if they think you did? Because the so what if you think you did is... I'm going to get fired and never work for the military again. That's yeah. kind of a big deal because that's my job. Yeah, but they, if they can't prove that he did it, they can't fire him for it. But still, I, you wouldn't you wouldn't get work again if they thought you did it. That's, that's possibly true. He demands to find out who leaked her the story, but she's obviously not going to say anything because she's a professional. And Seagram assumes that Pitt told her because she admitted that they knew each other. And this is when she just blows up at him and admits that not only do I know who Dirk Pitt is, but I lived with him for two years and I was crazy about him. And he says, if you're so damn crazy about him, why didn't you stay with him? And she says, because I was stupid. And then he <laughs> flips out and just turns around and walks away. And she's chasing after him because she, realize, she realizes she said something extremely hurtful, but uh, yeah, she, totally she can't get him to turn around. Mic yeah. Drop. <laughs> um, Later at a press conference, Sandecker explains how they plan to patch the hull of the Titanic with metal plates and then pump the ship full of syntactic foam and then attach tanks filled with high-pressure hydrazine gas to the outside. And, and then, then launch explosives. Yeah, like, that part that's... makes the least sense to me. Yeah, There's a lot of thought put into this. I think that was necessary. Yeah, but... you got a rocket loose from the silt that it settled into. Yeah. Yeah, I no, think that makes sense. I, it makes sense, but also underwater explosions it's just very crippling <laughs> to yeah. ships. But they set all these explosive charges. They're going to be in the ocean floor to jar it loose from the ground. And then someone says, if you can raise the Titanic, what will you do next? And he says, then we will hold another press conference. <laughs> and then he turns and he starts to leave. On his way to the limo, he's getting 
the the harder to answer questions uh, from reporters focusing on the Byzanium and its capability as a weapon potentially, but he's not answering these questions. Pitt, Burke, and M. Emmett Walsh listen to radio interference that they've been dealing with and are able to determine that this is code, possibly something being sent from their own ship, likely to the Russian ship nearby. Sandecker shows up and explains that they figured out who their mole is. There was a guy whose wife was from North Vietnam, I think. Yeah, and but she, they claimed that she was Japanese, Japanese. On, on his uh, official record. And he met her as a POW and that they have connections to Russian intelligence. And we never see this guy and we never see any consequences. Yep, we never deal with this story at all. I mean, th- there is sort of consequences in so much as Russia knows exactly what's happening all the time. Mm-hmm. But there is no resolution to there being consequences for him right. that they figured this out. Yeah. I suppose it means that the, the Russians he's not, no longer giving them information. Yeah, see, like, the, but they do, they don't need it anymore because now they have all the information from television. <laughs> they start lowering the hydrazine tanks to the Titanic, and one gets hung up on a smokestack. DeepQuest grabs it with a robotic arm to reposition it, but the netting that they used to parachute these things down is still caught on the stack as they pull it away, and it tips backward and pins DeepQuest to the ocean floor. The guy immediately tries to run the engines at full thrust to get out from under it, but they can't budge, and the instrument panel indicates an electrical fire, and now battery acid is leaking out of their equipment, and it's smoking in the capsule, so it's probably some kind of deadly gas from the battery acid. Yeah, yeah. And so they all throw on masks, and they have to conserve their energy and breathing because they're they're running out of electricity. Well, I think it doesn't pin them against the floor of the sea. It pins them against the ship. Yeah, they're on the, they're they're on, on, they're they're on the, the ship. And, oh, okay. and, and, and he, they basically get stuck in between the tank and a skylight. Oh, okay. I think there was just so much silt on the deck that I thought it was actually them. Yeah, but part of the problem is that they're actually like wedged in like a skylight, which you know is surrounding them yeah. partially. But they can't get the submersible unstuck with the other submersibles, and they only have about six hours of air. So without any other options... Uh, Pitt suggests that they just move forward raising the ship now. But they're two weeks away from their target date in right. order to launch so, this project. Yeah, so the next step would be just double time adding all of the rest of the tanks and planting the explosives. Now Pitt is suggesting to double all the explosive charges to raise the ship ahead of schedule. And they plant them as quick as they can. We get these cool shots of robots fist bumping all the bombs. <laughs> yeah. And uh, started <laughs> activating them. I think it's crazy to think that you could complete two weeks worth of work in under six hours. I could at my job. <laughs> <laughs> they activate the hydrazine generators to inflate the tanks around the ship. And the charges start going off one at a time for some reason instead of all at once. I feel like it would have made more sense if they all went off at the exact same time. I can't tell if they're going off all at once or if we're just... No, they no, staggered them. They staggered them because they, the, the idea was to get the ship to rock. But again, you'd want it to rock from side to side, not like the bow left, the bow right. You'd want it like the whole ship to go left and right. Yeah. So yeah. it seems like they should have detonated all the right side and then all the left side. Yeah. Well, I think that they wanted to just create general vibrations to sort of liquefy the, the sand that it was sitting in. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't look like the Titanic's going anywhere until a couple of charges go off late and just barely manage to jostle the ship loose enough that it, it starts its ascent. Um, I get I got really frustrated at the constant redrawing of the Titanic simulation. <laughs> yeah. It's like, just show 
the amount of feet that it is down. And when that number changes, we'll know if it's coming up. You don't need to go through this redrawing of the ship every single time. (laughs) Uh, But the Titanic then surfaces, or a decent miniature of the Titanic is surfacing. I believe this is the the 50-foot, 10-ton scale model that they built. So interesting about that is that that's actually bigger than James Cameron's model. Right. But the difference is that this one was made to look like it had been set on the bottom of the ocean. So you could fudge things on it and excuse it away that, oh, it was just damaged, damaged, damaged. Yeah. Where James Cameron's uh, 45 foot had to look like it was brand new. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, But it's got, you know, the white foam of the water splashing over the top of it in super slow-mo. The crew on the Navy ship are cheering as the Titanic settles at the ocean surface and water's just gushing out of every porthole. Mm-hmm. I think aesthetically they did a really good job. I yeah. thought this this moment in the film makes the whole thing worth it because you're just like, this really feels like you brought this ship up. Yeah, it's yeah. a cool moment. Yeah, uh-huh. the, the, And because the model is so large, it feels a little bit more real than if you had something that was only like 10 feet long. But, the, the but still too small. feels right. Yeah. yeah. It, it still feels weird, though, a little bit. A little bit. Um, I, I attributed that more to the stop mo- or the slow motion than, yeah, the, maybe. than the water itself. But Sandecker's worried about Deep Quest because it's not on the deck of the ship uh, as it rises, but then suddenly it surfaces out in the water, and the mission is a complete success, short a few imploded guys. Um, oh. <laughs> uh, we pan across the deck of the Titanic, and there's like a weird mini animatronic man. Did yeah. you see this? Um, I didn't see it, but I read about it. And you I read didn't about s- it. I read about it, and I was looking for it, and I still didn't see it. Oh well, we'll I, pull it up I and I'll show it, it to you. Backed it up a couple times because I was like, "What is there supposed to be a guy on there?" Yeah, and there's then- a there's a tiny man on the ship, just like leaning forward and back like one of those drinking birds it's like what the fuck is that supposed to be because it's clearly an animatronic but there's not even supposed to be anybody on the boat yet so i don't know what it was supposed to be um what did you read about it um i can't remember where i read it because i was just doing some research and they they said that that the special effects guys did some kind of like goof where they put something on the ship that wasn't supposed to be there. Yeah, like a dude. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's like one of those things, like where you like the the C three PO and R two D two hieroglyphics in Raiders yeah. of Lost Ark or something like that. You know, <laughs> that bothers me less than this though. For some reason. <laughs> well, yeah, honestly, this looks like a tin toy that somebody like put on it that was yeah. wound up and just let to go. <laughs> it would bother me less if it was harder to see, but it, it like kind of stands out in the shot a little bit. Um, well, yeah, it's the only thing moving aside from water. <laughs> a helicopter drops supplies and a few men on the deck of the Titanic. Uh, Pitt explores the interior of the resurrected ship toward the grand staircase that we know so well from James Cameron's film. Suddenly, the deck of the Titanic is overflowing with men who are cleaning and drying and removing all that foam. Pitt moves to the bow and reattaches the pennant for old what's-his-name. Uh, Big, Big, <laughs> Bigelow. 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 And I believe it's the White Star Line uh, flag. Yeah. They start to attach a tugboat, but it gets a distress call. Well, the military ship gets a distress call. Oh, right. So they basically leave all these guys on the Titanic in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, with just these tugboats. And it's like, I have so many problems with everything that they're doing. It's like, I get it. Like, they they made a point of saying, like, oh, the ship's probably in in better condition than you expect because of the temperatures and things like that. But it's like, I would still find a better hold for those tugboats to grab than this rusted old pole. Most of that post was missing. I don't know why they put the rope on that. (laughs) 
But that's what they're going to tug it by. Yeah. But at this point, I was like, okay, cool. We we raised the Titanic. This movie's got to be over, right? And there's like another half an hour left mm-hmm. in this yeah. movie. But uh, as the ship is leaving, they said, well, we can't ignore a distress call. And Pitt says, we have a Force 12 storm russians and a famously shitty boat we're in distress like this is the definition of distress yeah i like the the he says we're on a ship never learned how to do anything but sink that's distress but then they get uh communication from the russians who are offering a hand in case the weather gets bad and the titanic sinks again this is where everything gets super weird for yeah. me i think yeah. that i was really good with this movie up until this point this is where the writing just kind of loses it they want to send over their captain prevlov that's Elia's boss from earlier. And Prevlov offers to take them aboard his own ship. And they're like, okay, well, then what happens to the Titanic? And he's like, well, we'll just salvage it and take it apart. And it's like, oh, yeah, we spent millions of dollars to come out here and raise the Titanic from the bottom of the ocean so you could just strip it for parts. Mm-hmm. No, we're not going to do that. And he says, well, we know about the Byzantium. It's like, yes, so does everybody. It was on the fucking television. <laughs> it's not a surprise that you know that. And he said, well, we know it was stolen from this Russian mine. And my boat over there actually has torpedoes. It just looks like a research vessel. And it's going to fire on the Titanic in eight minutes unless they agree to this offer. It's like, really? You're going to blow up the Titanic and this captain and just mm-hmm. sink them all to the bottom of the ocean just so that you can lose the Byzanium over again? They basically want to arm themselves with the Byzanium because they think it's a weapon, even though this team is trying to use it for defensive purposes. And Sandecker and Pitt admit that they were only pretending to need help because they knew that this was going to happen and that the Russians would extend this offer. And so they call on the radio to bring out the surprise package, which consists of a full-power nuclear submarine and Air Force jets that are just at the ready waiting for the Russians to make it. Yeah, so if there are jets, that means that there's an An aircraft aircraft carrier. carrier. (laughs) Uh, And how would the Russians not know about an aircraft carrier? They would. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I can see them not knowing about the submarine. But maybe. But the the aircraft carrier is a definite thing. But also, why, you just went through all that complaining about, like, we need that ship because we're going to be left alone here. It's like, but if you knew you had a submarine and an aircraft carrier... Who are you putting that on for? Yeah. I don't they, know. They were literally just saying that in case the mole was still around them to message the Russians and say... Maybe. Hey, they're desperate now. They need help and they're here on the Titanic But I thought themselves. we found that guy. I think they did, but I don't know that they removed him right away. Maybe they were utilizing him at that point since they knew who it was. That's what I thought the surprise package was going to be. I thought you bring out the surprise package. It's going to be their mole and their mole has already told them everything. And they're like, hey, here's this guy. We found out he's your mole. And he's like, what? I'm not a mole. And they just shoot him in the face in front of the (laughs) Russian guy. Just blood splatters across his. (laughs) Now it's your turn. But it also just seems like a lot of unnecessary theatrics. Like, why even let the guy come on board? Like, just be like, we got a sub here. You can leave us alone. Bye. Uh, yeah, or just have the sub stay on the surface. Yeah. If you're going to reveal have the it jets anyway. circle you the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, like, just don't go through that. They just wanted a gotcha moment against Russia. This yeah. is definitely part of the rewrite to make the Navy happy to be like, let's have one part where a Russian shits his pants on the Titanic. Mm-hmm. And they were like, okay, here's that part. So the tugboats finish attaching and they tow the Titanic to its destination in New York. He says the Titanic just arrived. Well, and the Titanic sails into New York under Brooklyn Bridge for some reason. 
I don't know New York, but it seems <laughs> like they're going under Brooklyn Bridge, which doesn't seem like it would be necessary. Um, I don't think it would be necessary to take it that deep into New York City. Yeah. Like, there, there are plenty of, of ports on you know the newport news virginia like i mean the places where they build ships and have dry docks that's why you're, that's where you would take it yeah <laughs> um with the equipment in new york they have what they need to bust into that hold and get out all that precious sweet byzanium inside the safe they find arthur brewster's corpse defending the payload he sunk with the titanic and they open a box to find that it's full of gravel and then they open the rest of the boxes and they're all full of gravel and the geiger counter is getting zero registry on this which to me instantly says this geiger counter is broken yeah because even if you are in just a normal outdoor area you are going to get gonna radiation click once or twice because there's just it's all around us you can't stop it but yeah well wouldn't they have been able to point it at the hold before and gotten some kind of click if there had been byzanium in this thing or would this thing have actually kept all the radiation inside well i would what I thought the joke was going to be was like what Jesse was saying earlier was just like, yeah, this stuff had a half-life of about 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's just, they didn't know it because they had Spent. so much of it. It's yeah. Um, I thought that that was going to be the twist. But they head back up above deck and Sandecker says, well, you know, maybe it's a blessing because if we'd found the Byzanium, it's entirely possible the U.S. government would have used it for a weapon instead of for defense and then he said well you said the president was totally on board with this defense program and he said yeah but he's not the president for life he's the president for a term mm -hmm. and the next president could throw it all out and start over and right. right now there's already a think tank working a working up a byzanium bomb and if they really were thinking this way like they had to have thought of this before yeah i, I mean yeah. clearly sandecker did why did we why did we do this at all yeah and that's exactly what seagram's point is he's like Wait, if you had even remotely considered that was a possibility, why would you have agreed to any of this mission? Because I wouldn't have if I knew I was helping make the next, like, uh, you know, m massive, uh, uh, what should I call it? Well, I, uh, I mean, I know we still got more thing about the one button for the movie here, but I feel like at this point they have to because they got the a Russian soldier got shot near that mine. They're going right. to find the mine. They're going to find out that the American the Americans were mining. They're gonna figure out what they mined, and they're gonna they're gonna put the pieces together and figure out that that stuff's on the Titanic, and they're gonna start looking for the yeah, Titanic. Yeah, but Sandecker knew that before he sent a guy to Svardlov to go to the mine in the first place. That's true. So obviously they didn't know this mine was there because everything was left in it. Yeah. So th this does have a, an interesting like uh, inception question: like, when did they know that there was byzanium? on Svardlov. Yeah. W when did Seagram or Sandecker Who discovered the Byzanium there in the first place? Yeah. Well, but, but well, we know that that was Brewster, but but that all that information had been lost. So how did at what point did Seagram because Seagram didn't know anything about Brewster or or the US military being involved? So who set that first person down there? Yeah, who set that first person there and why? How do they no know idea. that's where the place was to send him? Also there's definitely 200 ounces left in that mine <laughs> That's true. for Russia to yeah, build there, a weapon If there with. was a half ton, there's at least a little left. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not like there was exactly a half ton. Like God like <laughs> measured it out and cut it flat. He was like, mm -hmm. all right, that's a half ton. I'm going to tuck this in here. Scrape off the edge of the cup and yeah. then pour that in. For sure. For sure there's more. And there's already a team of Russians digging it up to make a bomb. And Sandecker says, well, I, I decided to go through with it anyway because I'd rather we had the bomb than them if 
that was what our governments were going to decide to do with it. Yeah. And Seagram tells Pitt that Sandecker's an asshole for doing this, and he doesn't understand either of them. And Pitt's like, well, hold on. Like, you don't understand him. That's not, that's not, that's never been my angle on this. But are you saying right now that if you knew where the stuff was, that you wouldn't tell the government and you would be okay with just leaving it where it was? And he said, that's exactly what I'm saying. And so then he kind of makes him prove it because he figured out this postcard that he found in Brewster's papers has a photo of a cemetery in Southby. And so when people kept saying, thank God for Southby, they realized that's not a person, that's a place. So they go there together, just Pitt and Seagram to this cemetery in Southby, and they find a headstone for Hobart, who we know is not buried here, mm-hmm. because he's buried on Svardlov, or probably dug up already by Russians. And the Geiger counter here is off the charts yeah. when they pointed at the grave. So, so everyone's just dying yeah, in this town. Yeah, everyone's been dying, and this graveyard is massive. And yeah. I was like, are they dying because there's just so much radiation here now? Yeah. Oh, this poor town. Also, Pitt and Seagram are now dead. They are, yes, they are walking sure. dead. Yeah. Um, yeah, their their film badges are black. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, they these two like lowly cemetery employees bring out shovels and they're like all right you want to dig this guy up like cool like we don't have a lot to do we just let people just come and dig people up occasionally yeah also like i i know I, this is kind of like a backtrack moment but when when again this stuff is seven times more powerful than uranium and yeah. they they open up the vault that it's contained in not wearing any kind of protective nope. gear yeah. and it's wooden crates wooden crates and they just start handling it. it's like it's like the guys in chernobyl picking up the graphite rocks yeah and going because eh, there's rocks hugging the elephant foot <laughs> just like oh this thing's smooth it's so warm uh <laughs> i was like you guys are idiots but uh, Pitt says, uh, when when they ask, all right, so you want us to dig up this corpse and just hand it to you for some reason? <laughs> and he's he's like, well, why don't you ask this guy if we're going to dig up the body? And he's like, no, we're not going to do that. And they leave the Byzanium there. And to contaminate says, the groundwater. Yeah, <laughs> to kill everyone in this small town of Southby. And, uh, and then we replay the whole surfacing of the Titanic under the credits. And that's the end of our film. They're killing Southby. With yeah, radiation. it kills slowly killing. You know, also again, the mining in 1910 would have been dangerous, and also maybe that's why only Brewster survived to the Titanic. Yeah, because everyone else was just slowly dying of cancer as their teeth were all falling out. Yeah, and see, that's the thing. Another thing is, I don't know what practical use uranium had in 1900 let alone something that's seven times more powerful than you. We need a half ton of this glowing deadly rock so that we can make watches out of it. Because they knew, (laughs) I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, like they knew uranium was dangerous and, uh, you know, and they did use radium in in things like watches and clocks. Yeah. uh, Because it glowed. But this stuff is way more powerful. The Geiger counter really hadn't been invented yet. So how do they know anything about this material? Yeah. These guys should have had. That's why they put it in wooden crates, stuck it on a, <laughs> stuck it on a boat. Yeah, Maybe that's the reason the Titanic sank. See, that's what I, 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 that's what I was kind of hoping. Like, like the, it had like it had weakened the metal somehow. <laughs> oh my god, they caused the sunk the sinking of the Titanic. Our director here was Jerry Jameson. He directed Airport seventy seven, but mostly TV stuff. Big packs of murder. She wrote Doctor Quinn, Walker Texas Ranger, and this movie, which felt very TV movie. Yes, it did. Uh, writer Adam Kennedy wrote Domino Principle for Stanley Kramer, and he was 
Stanley Kramer, obviously, was this film's original director. The adaptation by Eric Hughes. Uh, he also wrote Against All Odds and White Knights. Uh, the novel here was by Clive Cussler. He's the author of 25 books in the Dirk Pitt series, of which Raise the Titanic is three or four, because the first book written was published after Raise the Titanic. So now it's the fourth in the series, but Raise the Titanic was the third one to come out. Sahara is number 11, and in 2005's adaptation of Sahara, the Jason Robards role of Admiral Sandecker is played by William H. Macy, Richard Jordan's role of Dirk Pitt is played by Matthew McConaughey, and M. Emmett Walsh's Al Giordino character is played by Steve Zahn. Uh, they changed the character's name to Vinnie Walker in the film because in an early draft of the script, the character was killed off, and they didn't want to waste a popular character from the book series. Uh, it also, I think, I think it would have been funnier if M. Emmett Walsh had come back to reprise his role. Yeah, that would have been great. Um, I don't think he would. He could pull off what Steve Zahn does in Sahara, but uh we have goofy faces yeah he could do that that's true <laughs> Matt walsh is the master of goofy face and we also have uh clive Custler cameos in the film as one of the reporters harassing sandecker on his way to the car jason robards was admiral james sandecker we reviewed him in ballad of cable hogue for a patreon exclusive episode and he's also in once upon a time in the west all the president's men parenthood I think Magnolia was one of, if not his last movie. Yeah. And uh, A Thousand Clowns is a personal favorite. Quick Change. Quick Change. There you go. Uh, Richard Jordan was Dirk Pitt. Um, he was Jeffrey Pelt in Hunt for Red October. I was looking up the cast while I was watching the movie. Yeah. And I got confused with whose name I, was, I had read last. And I read that someone was in Red October. And I was certain that it was Seagram. I was wrong, oh, but because Seagram has that kind of more country accent and that and that jawline is like, yeah, that's the guy from Red October. And then I was like, oh, wait, Dirk Pitt was the guy from Red October? Is it the same guy that you were thinking of? Yeah, it was the same guy I was thinking of, <laughs> but I felt that the other actor looked more like he would look like younger than this guy did. Well, he's oh, probably clean funny. shaven, right? Correct. Yeah. He also played Duncan Idaho in Dune. He's Francis in Logan's Run. He was originally cast to play Dr. Nichols, the main antagonist of the Fugitive film, even getting as far as shooting some scenes with Harrison Ford before a diagnosis of brain cancer forced him to withdraw from the role, and he passed away three weeks after the film's release. Ann Archer was Dana Archibald. We had her earlier this year in Hero at Large as Jay Marsh. She's also Beth Gallagher in Fatal Attraction, the, the wife, not the mistress. She was the wife of Jack Ryan in a couple movies. Those are the Harrison Ford ones, I think. And she's the mother of Dee and Dennis on Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Alec Guinness was John Bigelow. He's Obi-Wan. He's the blind butler in Murder by Death. And he plays Yevgrov in Dr. Zhivago. Now, you said that there was another scene, or we, we, we believe that there was another scene that, that had a button with him. Yeah. See, I thought for sure he was going to be involved with something. Yeah. It went with this, like where he kept kind of looking off ominously. And I was like, is he mourning or is he trying to hide the fact that he knows something? Yeah. Um, like he would just walk up at the cemetery at the end and be like, oh, you found it. Yeah, exactly. That, that's what I'm, I was like. <laughs> I was expecting him to have known something and didn't want to say. But they just leave it at he was a guy that worked on the Titanic and was good at his job. I'm also confused as to how he could have he could be alive and be have been working on the titanic like this was so, like almost 70 years later yeah. 
And, I mean, presumably he was maybe 20 when he was working on the Titanic. As... So he'd be in his late 80s. Yeah. And I just, like, he does not look like he's in his late 80s. Well, he's not. He was <laughs> he was negative two years old when the Titanic sank, technically. Yeah. But, you know, you could tack 20 years onto him and it would be believable I, if he was, like, a late teenager. I don't think it was believable. <laughs> Who knows? I think... I think you needed think a much it's... more frail man playing mm, that part. It's hard in 2020 to judge what's a believable titanic survivor in 1980 because it's it was a different time and also the movie was originally going to be shooting in 76 probably when he was cast well i think i I think in 1996 we had a more believable uh titanic survivor you need to how old was she she was supposed to be a hundred and some years old but how old was the actress oh well when was she born okay because the last person that was alive on the titanic that passed away the last survivor to pass away it was in the last 10 years mm. yeah but it's probably a kid yeah but a kid can work in the shipping department a, a kid can uh, lots of kids did lots of work in those days so i could i could i could easily see him being a 13 or 14 year old like like i suppose that's like that's worker fair. old rose old rose was born in 1910 so she was 2 so Leonardo DiCaprio had sex with a two-year-old. <laughs> Inappropriate. No, but I guess what you're saying is, in theory, he is actually just a few years younger. He's, he's only four years younger he's than four her. years younger yeah. than Old Rose was. So. Yeah. In a, movie, right. in a movie that was 16 years later. Yeah. Yes. All right. Touche. Well, they would stay the same age relative to each other. He will always be <laughs> four years younger than her. <laughs> what? <laughs> Their birth dates don't change as they age. (laughs) (laughs) M. Emmett Walsh was Master Chief. I'm just going to leave it at that. No, he's Master Chief (laughs) Vinnie Walker. This isn't the Halo movie. Uh, He was Private Detective Visser in... Why did I just write Private Detective Visser in M. Emmett Walsh? (laughs) 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 Was the Coen Brothers movie with... Blood Simple? There you go. Yeah. His more menacing role. (laughs) He's Private Detective Visser in Blood Simple. Uh, he plays Bryant in Blade Runner. He's Harv in Critters. I think that's the sheriff. I think he dies in a Easter Bunny costume. Unless yeah. I'm confusing him with somebody no, I, bl- else. I believe that's him. Uh, he's Doctor Dolan and Fletch <laughs> Babar. Is that with two B's or one B? Uh, one B. B A B A R. That's two. That's two. <laughs> I thought you put together. We had him earlier this year in Brubaker as the contractor guy that was trying to cheat them out of money. And I also just saw him in Knives Out as Mister Proofrock. He's the guy who had a video recording of. The nurse leaving the property. J.D. Cannon was Captain Joe Burke. He was Society Red and Cool Hand Luke. He was the New York DA in Death Wish 2, and he played Phil Chalk in Scorpio. Norman Bartold was Admiral Kemper. He was a knight in Westworld. He was Ohio Tolls in Close Encounters, and he plays the president in Capricorn 1. David Selby, who played Dr. Seagram, was in 312 episodes of Dark Shadows. Uh, that's about it. Not a whole lot there, and he's the one who got the Razzie nomination for this film. Elia Baskin was Marganin. Uh, he plays Mr. Ditkovich in Spider-Man's 2 and 3. That's Spider-Man's landlord. In 2010, the year we make contact, he's one of the cosmonauts. He is in three MacGyver episodes, two of the original series and one of the reboot. He also plays cosmonaut Dimitri in Transformers, Dark of the Moon. We had Dirk Blocker in here as Merker. I'm guessing he's one of the guys in one of the submersibles. 
because we have several teams of guys in the submersibles. Well, Merker is supposed to, I believe, the, be the mole. The mole. Oh, okay. But I don't know when we ever see when him? we ever see him. Maybe that's part of the twelve minutes that got cut. Uh, he plays Hitchcock currently on Brooklyn Nine Nine. He's Mullins in Prince of Darkness, and he was Blaylack in Midnight Madness, the leader of the Green Team, which I think was called the Meat Machine or something like that. Michael C. Gwynn was Bohannon. He plays Dr. Burke and the MacGyver pilot. Charles McCauley was General Dale Busby. He's the president in Splash. Mark L. Taylor is Spence. This is definitely one of the guys in the submersibles. He was a member of the cult in Serial earlier this year, and he'll be back later this year in any which way you can. He's also Dr. Niles in Inner Space, yeah. Don <laughs> Forrester in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and Jerry Manley in Arachnophobia. I, I definitely remember him from Inner Space. Yeah. Uh, he, I had to really think hard about who he was in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, but he just plays some guy that uh, Matt Frew was supposed to go fishing with. Oh, okay. Um, At the like, beginning when they're like, trying to leave the house. Yeah, like he shows up and he says, I can't go because my kid's something or other. Yeah. Paul Twerp, that's how I'm choosing to pronounce this name, T-U-E-R-P-E twerp paul twerp plays clink he's richard donner favorite he plays cops in superman and goonies he's a mercenary in lethal weapon a poker player in maverick and he actually plays a different character in all four lethal weapon movies and he was the stage manager in scrooged which is also richard donner michael ensign was lieutenant northacker yeah i saw him in the background of uh, the submersible that gets crushed Ironically, he also dies in James Cameron's Titanic film because he plays Guggenheim in that movie. He was the hotel manager in Ghostbusters. He was Behringer's aide in War Games. Uh, he plays a neighbor in the first House film. And he was in a MacGyver episode called Soft Touch. Mm -hmm. And uh, we interviewed him for that show. And he was a very nice gentleman. Uh, and he had fun stories to tell us from the Ghostbusters set. I enjoyed this film, but there really wasn't much to it. It felt like if they envisioned this as something to compete with Bond... There's, there's no stakes. Mm -hmm. They forgot to build in any sort of like enemy. It's just like man versus nature. And even then it doesn't matter as we determine at the end of the film when we're like, you know what? We don't even want the Byzanium. Like the whole point <laughs> of this movie, we don't even want that stuff. Well, I think that, you know, they started to build that in with the whole Russian plot, but they needed to make it more of a cat and mouse game uh, going back and forth, you know, as opposed to, well, the U.S. the whole time had control over what was happening, and that was it. Yeah, and also to have Jason Robards just at the end admit like, oh, well, there was always a chance that we would use this to kill a bunch of innocent people with a bomb again. And then it's like, oh, well, why don't we don't want to do that. And it's like, no one else considered that? Mm -hmm. No one else here thought that that was even possible? Oh, we found this new crazy radioactive shit, and it's way more powerful than our other radioactive shit? And it's like... No one's going to use this for evil, right? We're just going to build a shield out of it. It's not vibranium. It's radiation, and it's going to kill people. And I don't know. I, I understand, like, that there's salvage laws and, like, maritime salvage laws. Like, you know, if you find it, such and such. But it seems to me that they have information about what was on this ship that had been stolen. And I don't know how much of that got leaked to the press because it's never really clear. It'd be like if you found a ship that had like confirmed stolen some famous artwork from a museum the museum would probably ask you to bring it back and yeah. not not keep it for yourself because you found it well it well, depends on where the ship is though but also that's generally the case 
now as we're giving things back to all the mm-hmm. countries that we stole them from. I don't think that was necessarily the mindset in 1980. It or belongs- even 70 when it was written. Yeah, that's true. It belongs in a museum. Is that what you were going to say? I was going to say, it belongs in my museum. <laughs> <laughs> At my house. I have a really great museum. It's got the Ark of the Covenant and an alien head. It's pretty good. But yeah, I, I don't think this was ever going to compete with the James Bond movie. I think if they'd played the Russians up as more of an enemy or if they had actually done the whole, because originally it was supposed to end with the whole last third of the movie was a hurricane affecting the Titanic again yeah. where they're left alone. And it's like, that would have been amazing. Like they're battening down the hatches and trying to keep the Titanic afloat a second time. Meanwhile, trying to defend off Russians who are yeah. trying to board it and steal it. Yeah. yeah. I, I was that like, would have been yeah, really interesting. you have a shootout on the Titanic. How awesome would that be? <laughs> yeah. I mean, prohibitively expensive. Sure. What? But also they awesome. already spent a lot of money on unnecessary things. Yes, I think they, they could have shifted some of it to a mm-hmm. cool firefight on the Titanic. But they also screwed up all elements of mystery that this thing had. So every time there was any question about what was going on, it was just sort of like, well, we got a bunch of information from a guy we you know, found frozen in the hole. Oh, we got a bunch of information off of these papers and... Or this letter that this we This letter got. that we found. Yeah. You know, like, so they just keep unraveling this stuff in a way where they just regurgitate all this information. It's like there, there's no real intrigue here. Yeah, and especially after the news report says, oh, they're, they found the Titanic and Byzanium, which is this horrendously radioactive material. And it's like, okay, now Russia knows everything. So why were we worried about a mole before if Russia knows everything we're doing and it's all mm-hmm. over the news? Like n- none of it matters anymore because we didn't even try to like fight back and hide any of it. And, and the Sicilian defense, like I kept waiting for that to be yeah more like because like he's like, are you a chess player? Is like, oh, is this some kind of like thing? Like, I mean, is is the Sicilian defense unbeatable? Is that like a is that a thing about chess? I don't know enough about chess. Yeah, but it would it would have been nice if it had sort of come around again and maybe we revealed something about the Sicilian defense mm-hmm. at the end that we realized why we were wrong in the first place to have done this or, or, yeah. or something. Mm-hmm. But it's not clear enough why Dirk Pitt and Seagram went along with this whole mission, never having even considered that this could be used as a weapon. And then now that they realize that they're like, oh, well, then never mind. Let's just go home because none of this matters. And it's like, no, it's just a historical find. The ship doesn't matter. Well, okay. So all of that being said, I really enjoyed the film. <laughs> You know, I think that I actually enjoyed it a lot more before we started thinking too hard about it. And I think that that's the way you need to watch this movie. Just don't think too hard about it. Enjoy the submersible footage and, you know, the, the... the silliness of the whole concept of what they're doing it's not don't take it too seriously and you'll probably like this film and i have to say not only did they really get right a lot of what happened aside from the fact that the ship was split in two um and separated into two two places before it hit the the ocean floor a lot of what they they envisioned as far as the submersible process and what it would look like down there was weirdly accurate and i even watched the ghosts of the abyss documentary just as a refresher because i hadn't seen it in a long time and so much of the footage just looks exactly like footage from that movie of them getting these spotlights on the ship under the water i just think they did a really good job they did a really good job of trying to portray this as realistically as possible and i, f- I feel like their 
attention was so focused on realistically portraying the retrieval of the ship that they didn't care as much about the story. Whereas like with the movie The Martian, I think there's a really good balance of the tension of is he going to get off of this planet with the technology of Mm -hmm. how everything's going to work with his limited equipment. But in this movie, I'm never worried about if they're going to survive. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is like when the submersible got stuck and they had to suddenly change their plan and bring it up i i suppose we're supposed to care because seagram's on there yeah he wasn't supposed to be on there but he is but we don't really like him right now so in in this point of the movie it's the, the stakes aren't that high for us but also i feel like they could have done a better job of mounting the tension in that scene where Mm -hmm. we could have had some back and forth maybe communication still worked for a little while and we're hearing how dire it is from up top and we watch them up top working so hard to save these men and and they strategize about how you fit two weeks worth of work into six hours because you only have one working submersible now to accomplish two weeks worth of work yeah it it, it seems like it seems like what we needed was and I would say like this movie needs to be extended for time. I, I needed for, I needed them to have more time. S- such an advanced submersible would have some kind of emergency, like oxygen connection. Like if it gets stuck, they could have another submersible could like bring an oxygen tank to it and they could tap into it. Got that midair refueling. Happening yeah. yeah. Again. <laughs> or just, just something like, so we can, we can get them another, like, you know, four hours, gives a give us a little bit extra time or something some, some i don't know just something what if what if they catch the mole and communication is cut off to the russian ship and then while they're down there just before the launch a russian submersible shows up and starts fucking with them yeah like, something I, I just i needed more of a threat from russia because what russia here is just like mm, give us your ship yeah. yeah give us your ship we yeah. got a gun and then they're like yeah we have guns too and he's like oh never mind bye <laughs> and he leaves and and it's so it's overly simplified the whole standoff that in they that do in that moment though i did want him to take out like the cyanide pill and just like chomp it down on the side like <laughs> like russia's not gonna let him back on his ship because yeah, yeah. he failed his it's mission like, can i be american now no <laughs> <laughs> oh nope that was a real tooth hold on ah uh. <laughs> oh god you have dentists in america uh like yeah like a russian submersible chase and and you could really like tap into that too and with the implosion stuff like you can only go so deep as they're chasing you like and the russians don't have the the technology to go that deep and but they they still try to chase him down (laughs) So it's like the iron man scene again yeah but he's he's tricking them into exploding or imploding their own ship right that's good i like it we've written a better uh more exciting raise the titanic and we only doubled the budget. Oh, man. Do you know how ex- expensive it'd be to redo this movie? It would be so much cheaper to do now. Well, but, but you, you make but you make three billion dollars yeah. like James Cameron know. did. You would, you would do it all CG, though, and that yeah. wouldn't look good. I think it would look as good as the ship in this movie. <laughs> and the stuff at the end looked real bad. When they're pulling the boat into the New York Harbor. Oh, yeah. That stuff is terrible. Yeah. It's like, oh, we'll just make it seem like it's really foggy in New York. <laughs> yeah, but only right on top of this ship. <laughs> Everything like else this is perfectly footage was clear. was taken in 1912. So. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I guess that was all footage from uh, the Bicentennial in 76. They got all this footage of all these boats out oh, in the harbor. So that's and why the, it was low quality footage. It and was why probably it, like. Well, it wasn't. It, that doesn't explain the footage problem, but it explains 
it explains why there's so many boats out in the harbor because they were out there to celebrate the bicentennial and then they made it oh they're out there to see the titanic i mean i yeah. thought that was clever you know like of course if the titanic were being pulled into new york harbor and mm-hmm. i had a boat i would be on that if boat. i had a skidoo, <laughs> i would crash into the titanic with it <laughs> just like i've made the statement before i'll make it here on the record if anyone ever clones a t-rex to adulthood i will get into its cage somehow and be eaten by it you can take that to the bank jess up or down i'm gonna give it an up even with all its problems i think that it's uh, it's a fun watch i do think it's a fun watch i i no it's a down for me i think um i i am giving it an up a reluctant up as well i find the whole premise of it fascinating and i probably would have found it more fascinating in 1980 before the titanic had been discovered and before you know james cameron's movie had blown up about it uh and then everyone's talking titanic yeah i i feel like there was still a little bit of intrigue yeah about mystery. the titanic and and even like the next year which i still haven't watched i really need to watch this movie of uh, the goliath awaits where they find a titanic like ship that sank but people are still living on it and they have like their own crazy society what year is that 81 oh man wait what's it called goliath awaits it's a tv movie oh it, i was it, gonna say i don't remember that on yeah our list it, for 81. It, it's a two-part tv movie it's got christopher lee and uh yeah it's like all about like these people like living in a crazy like bioshock-esque this, uh, society podcast this let's go watch a movie <laughs> so yeah i feel like this movie probably inspired some of those trends of like underwater movies kind of coming back for a little while yeah but um i'll give it an up i wish that numa had had some part in discovering the titanic i think that would have been cool if Custler had written this book about raising the titanic and then it sold so well that he was able to found an exploration arm that actually found the titanic but i think the fact that they found the carpathia is pretty awesome on its own um but yeah i i would say that it's a down just because um i i do think it takes a really long time to get where it's going and uh there's not <laughs> look at it from the titanic's perspective <laughs> yeah that took the longest to get where it was going but uh, it's just uh, I don't think there's enough there to warrant the time you wait for it to happen. Where does this go on your list, Jess? Um, you know, it's not too terribly far down. It's still in the it's amongst the movies that I liked quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I think I I lowered it a little after our discussion here, realizing how many issues the script really had. I put it. It's in nineteenth place right now for the year. It is above Mad Max and below the Earthling. Okay. Uh, I I have it uh, considerably lower, but but still well above the window's threshold. Um, I actually have this just below Galaxina and just above Die Laughing, um, which puts it as 39. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I guess I should make the point that my list is basically the order in which I want to watch these movies again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just just because it wasn't a great movie doesn't mean that it's not an enjoyable watch i yeah. think it's one it's a spectacle movie yeah right and i think that that it has a lot going for it in in terms of that it does and the sequence of actually raising the ship is incredible um but for me it's 57th uh it's going just between alligator and bronco billy for me which alligator i liked so that's not super low bronco billy's probably the first one where i'm like i wouldn't say liked but it was okay but um yeah it was all right I think that's everything for this one. 
If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show, and if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu which IMDb describes like so. Fu Manchu's 168th birthday celebration is dampened when a hapless flunky spills Fu's age-regressing elixir. Fu sends his lackeys to round up ingredients for a new batch of elixir. We leave you now with the trailer for The Fiendish Plot of Dr. Fu Manchu. One hour after seeing The Fiendish Plot of Dr. Fu Manchu, you'll want to see it again. Fu who? I love it. Peter Sellers in The Fiendish Plot of Dr. Fu Manchu. The Far East has never been so far out. Rated PG. Opens Friday, August 8th. Check newspapers for local listings.